a Podcast One production. So the Australian census, we all were caught up with the frustration of not being able to log on, the media telling us various different stories and getting upset about taxpayer dollars being wasted. We essentially had a excellent politician put their hand up and on national TV say that the census system was 100% secure, that your data could not be hacked and everything was safe and everything would be fine and everyone should use this portal and provide all their information. We monitor threat intelligence feeds from all over the world and pretty much about 30 seconds to a minute after that statement was made, we saw message boards light up, we saw emails firing around left, right and centre and a small army of people basically gathered to essentially prove this politician wrong. It was one of the largest DDoS attacks that we'd ever seen in Australia against a government organisation and what a denial of service attack, which is a distributed denial of service attack, is, is a whole heap of people getting together and they might use a software tool like a uh, low orbit ion cannon, which is a piece of software you can download and control via a chat box. This software was downloaded en masse and it was used to basically fire a whole heap of packets at this portal, which Australian residents were meant to use to upload their information for the census. And we say a few things here. The politicians shouldn't have said what they said, that data is 100% safe, because data, as long as it's connected online, is never 100% safe. They also kind of threw out the gauntlet to uh, every hacker who'd listened to this thing and then all the community boards that joined thereafter to prove that the statement was wrong. And then afterwards, the, the census kind of did a pretty poor job and unfortunately, a few good Australian businesses were, were caught up in it. So the organisation that was paid to load test this environment found themselves with a, a truckload of reporters on their doorstep the next day. And even though it was not their fault, the, the organisation had essentially load tested this thing. And what load testing is, is to essentially check to make sure it can cope with 15 million Australians logging onto the system at the same time. And but I believe they load tested it up to 150 million users. So the environment was suitable to task, but uh, one stupid statement from a uh, politician motivated a large group of uh, individuals to attack it. And I'm not 100% sure on this one, but I've heard a rumour around the tracks that someone actually breached that environment as well. Fergus, right up your alley with cyber breaches. I'm sure you've dealt with things like this before, but what are your thoughts on this hack? Yeah, it's interesting also to, to add about uh, what happened in the lead up to the census, Bastion, is the fact that for the first time ever, the Bureau was insisting that people put their names and addresses, all the, all the names of the people who live in the house when you're doing the census. And so, interestingly, you know, one of the world's biggest hacking groups is actually called Anonymous. And here's the census asking them to give up their anonymity. So, of course, they're going to attack it. And, of course, also security, you know, hackers and people like that are generally mischievous. So, you know, th that, throwing that up was throwing a red rag to a bull. Mm -hmm. A lot of organisations fail to actually prepare for cyber events or cyber criminal events. And what that means is the day that the, the cyber event happens, they really don't know what to do. So we recommend organisations straight up create a very simple one-page plan with a, a more substantial document backing it up saying, 
if our data gets stolen, if we end up on the front page of the news, if police are, arrive at our door, if reporters arrive at our door, these are the steps that we follow. And unfortunately, we ask this question a lot to organisations. It's one of our first questions. Do you have an incident response plan? And most organisations say, no, they don't. And that's a pretty scary thing because if you try and solve a problem while you're in crisis mode, it is not a good mindset to be in. So a great way for uh, organisations to actually prepare for a uh, cyber incident is to actually do some threat modelling. So what happens if you get an email one day and a, a hacker basically advises you that they have your entire contacts database, they have all your IP, and they're going to release it to the world and crypto lock your entire environment if you don't pay $150,000 into a Monero or Bitcoin wallet within 24 hours. And watching when we do these threat simulations, and Fergus, you've seen this firsthand, the, the utter chaos that ensues, especially when you throw something into the, uh, into the mix, like the guy who normally deals with your cyber security is on an airplane, or your CFO or your CIO is on an airplane, people have no idea what to do. And the, the media ends up coming down and talking to your IT guy, who probably isn't someone you want talking to the media. And I apologize to all the IT guys out there. I'm one of them. We just don't have the face for media. I think when we've run these threat simulations before, let me just explain what a threat simulation is. Uh, a threat simulation basically means we come up with a real nasty scenario, something that could potentially happen to the business. And then we throw that out on the table for the people who are meant to fix the problem and handle the incident. Now, a lot of people, I see this happen all the time, small companies, big companies, people will go, well, it's a cyber threat Therefore, the best person in the company to deal with it is the IT people or the IT service provider. Not necessarily true because this is an organisational issue, which means the CEO or the most senior people in the company are going to need to make some decisions. Now, when you're under duress, making decisions is, is very difficult. You're being extorted. You've got organised crime on your door. You know, what are you going to do? And this is why we always recommend that people put a plan on a page in advance. And so a threat simulation is a way to test, you know, how would the organisation behave under duress? And it, and it always comes down, it always breaks down in uh, communications, believe it or not. That's the most common thing. We tell the media the wrong thing. We tell our, our employees the wrong thing. We contradict each other, which, uh, which is what happened after the census. Uh, the, uh, the, the minister and the head of the Bureau contradicted each other very publicly in the media about exactly what caused the problem. And that had terrible reputational damage for them. So I you know, believe that sort of having a think about the scenarios that might happen to you and say, well, what would we do if this happened to us? But do it in advance. Don't do it after the incident. And then put down on a page, this is who we'd call. This is who needs to be involved. And if the CFO is on the plane, who's the person backing them up, et cetera, et cetera. One of the uh, things that often surprises me is just how prevalent cybercrime is in Australia. It's happening every day. And we see organisations spending millions of dollars preparing incident response plans for things like there's a shooter on site, there's a bomb in the building, there's all these steps that they've taken to address, and they know these plans back to front. If there's a shooter in the building, we have these evacuation points. You ask them this very simple question, has this ever happened? And their answer for most organisations hopefully is no. But do you have an incident response plan? Do you have a cyber response plan? The answer more often than not is no, we don't. Then the follow-up question, how many cyber events have you had? Well, we've had quite a few in the last three years. 
So why are they spending all this money on the shooter on site, the terrorist plans, and not uh, spending money and, and putting some time and effort into an incident response plan related to cyber, which is happening to the organisations every day? So when we think about the Australian census and the devastating impacts that, that had on the, uh, on the Bureau's reputation, also the frustration that uh, everyone felt and the fact that no one really depends, no one's really relying on the census results anymore and it used to be such a strong brand. But now what we've got is we've got this, you know, the new electronic health records, the My eHealth being introduced by the government. And uh, this, is, this is being introduced to sort of help to move the medical profession Away from uh, away from its heavy dependence on paper, uh, which means a lack of efficiency, information not being shared easily and accurately. And I had an example of this when I was sick a few weeks ago, and I was away. And I went, and this was still New South Wales, but I went into a I went into a doctor's surgery, and they had to create a new health record for me uh, there and then on the spot. Made the made the consulting twenty five minutes longer, uh, which would be unnecessary underneath the new e health guidelines. However, if we take into account the census and what went on with that and the fact that they are still, the service providers are still bickering about whose fight it was a few years later, um, you know, are we going to trust the government to keep these records safely, considering what the records are? They are extremely valuable way of perform- of, of organised criminals starting to do things such as identity theft. Uh, it's very personal information. Uh, and also, it's everything about your health from the moment you're born. Uh, goes into an e-health record. So, you know, I think the Australians have the have the right to be sceptical based on what we saw from the census, uh, to be sceptical that the government can be depended on to look after these records and potentially think about opting out. I will caveat that, though, in that uh, I have two ageing parents and they often have been in and out of hospital every now and then. I think for them, for older people who are having more health issues then I think that uh, it makes better sense to, uh, to have your digital healthcare records. But, um, I, you know, the choice isn't entirely yours, but um, think about the census when you're thinking about whether to opt in or out. So, Fergus, quick question. Have you actually opted out or in? Yes. You've opted out. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was early in the opt-out list. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm in the same boat there. But obviously the, you, there needs to be some consideration thought to the, to the benefit of it as well. Yeah. So, Fergus, you come from an IT background and then you merged over into the insurance, the dark insurance world. What kind of uh, things would you recommend? Well, I guess cyber insurance has come a long way in the last, uh, believe it or not, it's actually been around for something like about 15 years, but uh, definitely in the last sort of five or six years, we really saw the take up. In terms of how the insurance interacts with the, re- with the regulations, so what we've seen is we've seen... Um, a, mar- a far higher take-up of cyber insurance in the US than we have in Australia. One of the reasons for this is that the US has had mandatory data breach notification regulations in the country for some eight years, depending on which state. They've got a bit of a messy environment over there because each state has different legislation with different terms and conditions under the regulation. But in Australia, we've got new mandatory breach notification. So what that means is a couple of things. One thing uh, that's important when you're dealing with regulators is that you need to be seen to have done something. You need to have seen to have preempted an issue and you need to be ready to handle an incident. And I'm afraid Australian companies are largely woefully unprepared to handle an incident. 
But if you have an insurance policy, and what a lot of people don't realise is a cyber insurance policy, is that you will have uh, in that pol- within that policy an A-team to fly out and help you when you have an issue. So we saw this recently, Fergus. We uh, recently had a big insurance partner call out to us and, and we became the A-team to help them through the challenges they were facing after a breach. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, you know, this gets paid for by the insurer based on the terms of your insurance agreement. But basically what you get involved in this is that you get IT forensic. It's where we come in to have a look at the incident, make sure it's not going to happen again, make sure that they're not still in there, the bad people. You also get legal advice as part of it. So that's very interesting when you're talking about regulators because how you notify the regulator, let's just assume you have to, how you notify the regulator is really going to impact how they move forward with taking any action on you. Then the other thing, and this is where it falls down for me all the time when we, when we test the incident response plans, is communications. How do we communicate internally? How do we communicate to our staff? How do we communicate to our customers? We've had a breach or an incident. How do we communicate to the regulators? How do we communicate to the authorities? How do we communicate to the media? Uh, And all of these things, if handled well, can minimise the brand and reputational damage to an organisation. And one thing that's increasingly coming up is how prepared is an organisation for a cyber incident? What have they done to avoid this from happening or making sure it's not, it's not a complete debacle when it does happen? So if you've got a plan on a page and you've gone through a bit of a threat simulation process and you've mapped your scenarios and risks, when you get investigated by one of the regulators, you're going to be in a much better position if you've done some of those things as opposed to doing absolutely nothing. Well, when we take our clients uh, through the process, we do a bit of research on the industry that they're in we look at recent attacks that have occurred on that industry. We create a threat simulation model. And we do, first of all, we run that threat simulation before we've done any work with the client and we, we rate them how well they've done on, on various key aspects. Then we take them through the process of writing a proper incident response plan. And then we do the threat simulation again and we review them. And it's, it's like chalk and cheese. The, the organisation communicates well, the incident is dealt with well, the impact of the business is reduced, um, and people know what they need to do. It's it's very. I liken it to uh, the military. They go through drills, they test, they train, and when the real world war scenario arrives, it's like clockwork. Everyone knows their role. Everyone knows what they need to do. If someone is missing from that role, then other people know what to, how to step in and complete that role themselves. So, Bastian, mate, what do you think are the key industries that? Uh should be extra wary of what's, of what's happening in the cyber world? Look, I think uh, we've seen an increasing trend with uh, real estate companies being targeted. I've seen an increasing trend for manufacturing organisations being targeted, transport, emerging technologies. We see a lot of uh, data seems to be shifting off to China for IP being developed by R&D companies in Australia. They're getting targeted for sure. Organisations that have high input-output invoicing, yeah, real estate, again, is a great example of that. Home builders are a great example of that. They're just processing. I have one example of a, a home builder that's transacting, I think, 90,000 invoices daily with over $150 million in and out of their bank accounts. They're a huge target. I mean, if you think of a big, juicy payday, that's uh, probably not a bad one to motivate uh, individuals or organisations overseas. I've seen some interesting, uh, there's been some interesting sort of emerging risks coming out as well, which I don't know if you've thought about, but um, financial advisors. Yeah. There's a lot of them. 
and they have the same problems with passwords and stuff as we have. And so, and they have, in a lot of cases, high net worth individuals' assets, and I think they'll definitely be on this organised criminals' radar. The other one, which is uh, doesn't make me very happy, is the aged care industry. Mm. You've got elderly people who are not savvy and don't realise that they're potentially being socially engineered because they're not as tech-savvy, perhaps, as the, as, the, as the younger people. And also, you know, we've seen from the aged care, um, the commission into aged care, that a lot of the systems are not particularly secure or up to scratch, and that that's an industry that's potentially right for the hackers. We're seeing some really cool technologies emerge to help address some of these issues. So I'll give the example that you gave first, Fergus, the financial advisor. We've actually got a client of ours that came on within the last 12 months, and they had $160,000 transferred out of their client's account by them into a crypto fund. Essentially, same kind of uh, invoice fraud, email breach um, kind of hack that uh, essentially the, the financial planners' email systems were compromised. They watched the interaction between the client and the financial advisor over six months we traced back the forensic information for to to an outside IP address and essentially the this client will quite often send buy or sell commands to the fire to the financial planner and in this case it was a uh, buy command for a cryptocurrency of $160,000 which wasn't made by them the cool technology that I'm talking about is uh one called Cyberhound. Now they're big in the school play and they're also big in the email play and they actually monitor user behavior and look for keywords. So a financial planner, for example, should have policies and procedures in place that any transaction should be backed up by say a phone call or a, or a second factor authentication or, or some other means of verifying the identity of that person. And what Cyberhound does is actually looks for key elements in attacks and it's a very intelligent system using machine learning that constantly uh, develops new attacks and threats and scans emails and communications for that risky behavior and stops them in their tracks. And in schools, we're seeing it uh, being used for students to prevent bullying. We're seeing it for students to prevent uh, adults coming exploiting children for money, but it really works well for business as well. We get a smile on our faces when a startup comes and approaches us and says, what do we do about cybersecurity? Because we can help them. We can really address a greenfields environment. We can get things like policies and procedures in place from day zero and really grow with that organization right up until you see them hit the stratosphere. It's a little bit different when an SME comes and approaches us. You know, They've got all these uh, pieces of software. There's a lot of technology sort of coupled together. They're somewhat set in their ways and it's a little bit harder to ingrain good cybersecurity practices within them. And that really comes from educating the top of the business at an SME, then getting them to help us educate their staff, putting proper policies and procedures in place that they actually implement and disseminate within their business, then employing some technology and services to actually protect them from current cyber threats, and lastly, testing them to make sure that they're actually following all the processes. Bastion. What are the uh, sort of simple steps that all organisations can take uh, in order to prepare themselves for the cyber incident? Well, I think essentially they need to understand the industry they're in, understand the risks that they face, then using that information, create an incident response plan that uh, is very easy to understand. You can do things like put it in a poster format and put it up around the uh, office 
the crucial thing to any incident response plan is it's tested. Uh, so once you've created this document, run some scenarios, either use a third-party organisation to uh, do some threat modelling for you and test your incident response plan and modify it as a live working document as required and constantly check this thing. So if you implement a new a control or you implement new staff, make sure they understand it, make sure it's tested, uh, and then you'll be in good stead should the inevitable happen. Everyone knows what they need to do. Everyone knows their roles within the organisation and you can uh, take the steps required to return you to business as usual as soon as possible. Cyber Hacker was brought to you by Podcast One and CTRL Group. Presented by me, Bastian Treptel, produced by Matt Dwyer, our very own Stephen Williams from CTRL Group, and a special thank you to Fergus Brooks. Hacking is real. People and organisations are being taken down every day. If you'd like some professional advice and assistance, go online to ctrlgroup.com.au and we'll help you.